This podcast takes you into the rarely discussed realm of the personal decisions leaders have taken that have influenced their business decisions and developed them into the leaders they are today. The refreshingly honest experiences of those who have been very successful provide an insight into the challenges they faced, the successes they achieved, and the people who influenced them along their journey. Here's our host, Mark Silvera. Welcome to Business Made Personal. This podcast is brought to you by the insurance industry's leading education and events provider, ANZIF, via their Careers in Insurance initiative. I'm Mark Silvera. Hey, thank you so much for having us in your ears. Mark Crossman has been with Underwriting Agencies Australia for close to 11 years, and he is their Group Strategy and Distribution Manager. His prior roles have included six years at Zurich and stints in claims, underwriting, and broker development roles. Welcome to the program, Mark. Thank you, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. Talk to me a little bit. I ask everyone the same question to kick off with, but uh, your background growing up, you know, what was it like? Where did you grow up? What sort of things happened to you over that, those sort of early years? For those that don't know, I'm an Adelaide-born uh, boy through and through, still to this day based there, but obviously a lot has transversed over, over those years with, with travel, et cetera. Growing up, you know, we, I had a, a very close-knit family, very loving mum and dad, uh, grandparents. If you're being honest, you know, it didn't really come from much. You know, it was something that, you know, watching my parents battle day to day just for finance and to provide for me and my sister was, you know, challenging. And, and reflecting back on that, it's probably a motivating factor as well for both myself and my sister since, you know, childhood and, and finishing school. So we never missed out on, you know, school trips, things like that, sports that we both were very active in and, and always had a presence from our parents there, which was, you know, engaging and encouraging as well. I guess one of the interesting things with me is, you know, I, I didn't really like school. I didn't finish school either. I sort of stopped school maybe three to four months before year 12 exams. I just said it, found it not engaging at all with me and, and sort of not something I wanted to be a part of. I wanted to go out and work and, and experience life. But sort of growing up, it was, you know, I guess the, the overarching theme was that I had support from family. You know, there was always family there and we weren't sort of, um, even though we were struggling, me and my sister, you know, at times really wouldn't have noticed it until sort of becoming adults and then looking back, it was more my parents sacrificing at their end for us to have what we needed and, and the things that we needed to do. So just thinking about your parents for a minute when you say, you know, they were struggling, was that because of the work they were doing or was there some other reason behind that? It was work um, and, and finances, I guess. It was around that time where, you know, um, they tell me the story where they bought you know, a house five minutes from the city centre in Adelaide. Uh, at the time, my dad was in a, a really successful job and essentially a, a state manager of a hardware chain um, over in, in South Australia. And they, you know, wanted to, my mum was fully employed. They wanted to, you know, get a new house, my sister being on the way. They bought it for, I think, $12,000 back then. Um, they actually sold it last year for, for substantially more with a couple more zeros on it. But it was at the time where they went in and bought that. It was an expensive purchase at that time. It wasn't something to sneeze at. And then there was a period of about three to four years of dramatic rate increases or interest rates compared to what we're seeing now, even higher, um, you know, in the teens. So it was those sort of finances that got them on the back foot. And then the hardware industry, I suppose, got overtaken by things like Bunnings and things like that. So dad ended up, you know, not having his senior role and, and sort of moving back and trying to navigate his career. So it wasn't we didn't have, we did, but it was challenging for them given the work environment and finances and 
you know, the economic pressures as well. So. so you also mentioned that you didn't finish school. Was that one of the reasons why you didn't finish school? No, I was given school. You know, my grades were Bs and As. I was that student with my learning style that I would listen and hear, and that was retention for me. So in class, I'm listening to the teachers and, and retaining the information, but at the same time, I'm distracting others. So I wasn't focused, uh, if that makes sense. I was very much a distraction to a lot of other people, and I wasn't engaged in it. So it was more a, a social thing for me at times, and especially as I got older. You know, I was working from when I was sort of 13, 14 in retail, just on Thursday nights, Saturdays, that sort of thing. I had that experience and I was like, well, this, I'm more engaged there than I am here. And I think if I'm not engaged here, I need to be doing something that is, you know, motivating me um, and that I'm going to learn from. And that's where I, I talked to my parents. I sat them down and I said, this is what I want to do. This is my plan. This is what I'm thinking. And this is the reasoning why. And, and they supported that. They weren't happy at all, but they supported and understood. And, you know, I guess could see that I was making educated decisions and they weren't just sort of on a whim and I wasn't going to do anything. I'd already lined up converting, you know, the part-time work I was doing ironically at Bunnings to full-time work. So they could see that there was motivation there. And I guess the rest is history from there. Yeah, look, you're really fortunate that your family supported you because most parents to a young person of that age would say, no, no, you've got no idea what you're doing. You're going to go back and you're going to finish school, particularly when you've got three months to go, right? Yeah, correct. And there were those conversations, uh, definitely initially, but I guess they could see, you know, that I was driven to this decision and was something I was definitely engaged in. So they, they came around in the end. So let's talk about that a little bit. So you then pack your bongos from school, you head out, you join Bunnings, right? During those sort of early employment years, was there someone who was a major influence for you in terms of setting you up for the future? I don't necessarily think in the working world at Bunnings that there was. I think that at a young age, you know, what I had exposure to and, and what's probably led me to be equipped, I guess, in my approach to things is probably my mum and dad for very different reasons. They're, they're probably the yin and yang to the story behind me. Um, you know, my mum has always, even growing up and, and sort of in her work, has always had a very savvy EQ balance where she's able to read a situation, read someone, you know, and show the correct emotion and, and sort of twist how she's responding to engage with them. And, and that leads her to, you know, being a really, really good communicator um, and, and very effective in that as well. Great listening skills and, and definitely shows, you know, a very strong presence of compassion to others. So that's something that, you know, has resonated with me quite well and sat with me. And then I guess similarly, my dad on the other coin, he's he's always had this ability, a strong ability to problem solve and not get caught up with the norm. It's like finding ways to do things and, and solving problems himself. He's from a very young age, me and him were very active with DIY projects for the house. And still to this day, I, I like to do stuff. It's my hobby to, to sort of get some downtime. But, you know, the ability to think outside the box and, and find solutions and be planned and look at situations and assess different options is, is probably something I picked up from him. And I guess being very hands-on is something else that I, I learned from him. You know, even in the role I'm doing now, I still like to be hands-on with the guys and stuff like that. So... I think apart from them, the only real one that stands out is actually my year eight math teacher. It's probably the only teacher that had me fully engaged in a subject. And his name is, was Mr. Golding. I didn't, once again, wasn't really one of those kids to pay attention, but 
I guess I grew up playing baseball and he knew that because he coached another club that I played against. And in his class, he would talk to me and engage with me with the problems we were facing. But, you know, he'd relate those back to baseball. So he captured my mind in a way that engaged me and, and knew that it would motivate me. And I guess that's a skill that I'd learned you know, from him and I still adapt to this day. My, my style is very different with each of my team depending on, you know, their needs and, and what they, they require and finding ways to keep people engaged and that's served me well so far. And that's a powerful learning, right? And, and in fact, there are many people in management roles that still haven't quite got that together. And I think right now in this current climate where there is a requirement, particularly from younger people, to be treated as individuals as opposed to a group that's a really powerful thing to have. Yeah, indeed. So it then begs the question, you know, you obviously like doing things with your hands. You start work at Bunnings. Your father was the state manager of a hardware store. How the hell did you get into this space, mate? I guess I'm going to use the cliche word uh, or term, sorry, term. I, I fell into it. Yeah, I did. I fell into it. I, and there is a story. I worked at Bunnings full time. I then not long after finishing or leaving school, I probably did another six months there. I went and worked in a sales role at Borrel Plasterboard. So, um, you know, another sort of industry-related hardware thing, but building-related. I worked for them for about a year. And then I was, you know, 19. I want to experience life and, and had this thing of, I need to go ahead. I knew a person that did a traveling sales role doing expos around Australia. It was a company called Guja Rugs. Yes, I sold rugs, carpets. For about six months traveling around Australia, it was quite intense. I was away, you know, two weeks at a time, back for three days, then off again. And I really enjoyed that sales role. I was, you know, quite successful in it too. It was a commission-based thing. So I had some success there. But being away from family and friends at that age, I, I sort of then quickly shifted to, I want to be back home. So I made the decision to to sort of stop doing that, quit work and move back home. And, and when I got back home, part of the uh, conversation when I left school was that I wanted to be working, I wanted to be employed. So as soon as I got home, my mum said, you know, it's great to have you home. And then dad said, what are you going to do for work? <laughs> so they were there motivating and supporting me once again. And I said, oh, look, I'll commit to you. I'll have full-time work. And I don't know what I want to do long-term, but I'll figure it out. But I'll find some work in the meantime. And Went on seek that night and Zurich had a trainee claims officer role advertised and it clearly said no experience necessary. And I said, well, I can do no experience necessary for a bit. And yeah, the rest is history. And so when you went into somewhere like Zurich, I'm assuming that most of the organisations that you'd worked for, including Bunnings, would have been sort of localised retail type. You move into Zurich, which is a monolith of an insurer. How did you go navigating from being your own sort of boss selling rugs and, and other things to being part of this corporate giant? It was eye-opening. I'll say that from the get-go. There was a lot of knowledge to take in. I think that my mindset and approach is always around a, a learning mindset. That's something I've always sort of had. I, I thrive when I'm learning and experiencing. So I was engaged from the get-go because there was a lot to learn. I think the other thing that was different when I went in was that, yes, Zurich was this global company. It had big bosses that would float through from interstate and, you know, you would sit in the boardroom that does thing. But the people in that office, they're local people and they understood, I guess, that there was a balance to be had. So I was able to have some really, really 
experienced people within that office that I could leverage off and learn from. And this, you know, still to this day, probably at the core of, you know, why I am where I am, because I was able to have diversity in learning and, you know, you got people in claims, people in underwriting, people in sales and state managers that were open in a smaller office of this much larger thing to, to sort of teach and to engage. So it was, yeah, definitely a, a global company and it was huge. But at the same time, that, that office was very local and the fuel of it was local too. They had time, they had energy and, and they put that into you, which was really, you know, exciting and engaging as, you know, a 20-year-old coming in. Subsequent to that, you've had roles in claims, you've had roles in underwriting, you've had roles in broker development. How easy was it for you to transition into those different functions? It was deliberate, number one, in its intent. I started, you know, in, in motor claims and then moved to property and liability claims to gain different exposure and diversity, you know, and then a part of that journey with Zurich was that, you know, I needed to get underwriting experience and had some really good mentors within that office and within the company as well that sort of promoted that. It was around the time that Zurich started their future leaders program, uh, which was way back when. And, and there was, uh, I was in that sort of first cohort. So that we had some good sort of sessions there and it was quickly identified to just get the experience that you can, especially at the age you are. So, you know, I, I was talking with our um, underwriting manager, Chris Horsnell at the time, who's still there to this day. And he's very knowledgeable and, and I admired him and his approach. So I wanted to work for him and, and learn. And I moved into the underwriting with him looking after property and motor and then later moving just to motor. And that was probably the good solid foundation. I think there was transferable knowledge, obviously. Being in the one company, there was a lot of knowledge around the wording and products offered, brokers we dealt with, that didn't change. So it was just more so the day-to-day process for what you're doing that changed. And that's something that I guess comes down to the coach that you've got. Um, and, and I say coach deliberately because, you know, Chris Orson was a great coach and sort of, you know, the, I learned a lot from him and I now sort of approach my day-to-day in the same way. I think the same thing with moving into a broker development role was more around having those existing relationships once again you've already got the product knowledge for various things within that company so that was an easy transition you know i think the hardest transition for me was going from a bdm at zurich to a bdm at uaa and that's sort of you know new product new way of doing things so that was a, a bigger learning curve i guess and moving to uaa which is a smaller underwriting agency did you feel that you were missing some of the resources from the major corporate i guess there's trade-offs everywhere you look. You know, there is trade-offs for working at a, a general insurer or a company that size compared to an underwriting agency. I guess the, the size of the beast leads to more, I guess, feel, especially at that time of security. That was one of the big things said to me by many people at the time. You know, it's a risk, you know, the security you've got with Zurich. I guess the resources that you have available at the same time at Zurich were, were quite diverse. There were so many different products. I think at the time there was 62 or something like that, different wordings available, and, and that's tough as a BDM to be across. So there was support there. There was knowledge sources. There was size. There was scale. Going across to the other side of the fence, which was the taboo thing at that time because you know, underwriting agencies were still emerging at that time. But at the same time, there's so much positive with an underwriting agency too that sort of outweighed that. I still had the support. I think that being a niche sort of provider, there's a lot of experience in there, more than what I had or would have had at Zurich in this particular space. That then leads to them able to sort of educate, coach, teach at a quicker rate, I guess, because it's more refined. They've been doing that only that for X, Y, Z years. So. 
I guess there's trade-offs everywhere, but there is, you know, positives and negatives to both. Now, you've spent a little bit of time overseas as well. How did all that come about? So, obviously, the transition to UAA has, you know, proved really beneficial for me. Starting as a BDM, you know, as, as the only person in SA, I guess that building a business then led to staff within that office and moving to a, an ops role, so an operations manager role, and having um, someone else do the BDM work. In that course of, you know, that four-year period of being the ops manager, I, I committed to a lot of study. I wanted to then go, okay, well, now I'm engaged in something. Here comes the study part that I'm actually motivated and engaged to do. So sort of completed my, my MBA, a couple of other things, and took on some extra work within UAA um, around you know, projects and attending some of the management offsites and things like that. And it tied in well with our expansion as a company to sort of global markets and, and sort of starting that process, which we're still doing to this day. And I guess the benefit for me was my age, the position of the career, the skill set that I'd got, the learnings that I'd just sort of completed and going, well, here's an opportunity to go to another country, set up our sort of regional Asia stuff in Singapore and then come back if you, know, if you want, I guess. Yeah, that's how it came about. I think it was right time, right place. And sort of, you know, the skill set was sitting there too, which was beneficial. So, yeah, definitely not something that initially was planned in any way. It was more, yeah, just opportunistic and aligned with the strategy of the company at the time. You head over to Singapore. How old were you at this stage, Mark, if you don't mind me asking? I was around 32 years old. You would have had an expectation of what to expect. But did you encounter any challenges that you didn't? expect that you didn't anticipate yeah i mean both in a personal perspective and a a professional perspective definitely i think 32 i only got married the november before so been married two months and and sort of navigating you know the january move so two months married and then i'm away from her for two months and trying to get that balance of get things ready for them the wife to come across and, and sort of make sure it's seamless for her and easier for her and so that was that was quite challenging making sure that had the right place like location of the apartment that sort of thing facilities available and that everything was you know ready i guess and and not really having a network of friends etc that time that was a very challenging dynamic to take on but sort of jumping in and leveraging relationships where i could proved beneficial professionally i guess it was more the market adaption and the culture as well it's a very very different market over there i think in the easiest way to explain um, the first day in the office where we we know we're, we're sort of trading for the first day the bdm at the time that we'd hired and is still there Venice, she, she wrote her first new business uh, was super proud and comes in told me i said oh that's great you've got an email but have you got the closing and it, she goes what's the closing we don't know whether so it's there was intricacies there that you know it didn't replicate what I'd experienced in Australia and, and you've got to quickly adapt to that because not only does your knowledge need to adapt but you need to adapt your the mindset of what you're offering what we're setting up as a business and, and what we've got to the localized sort of economy and the localized way of doing things so that was eye-opening and really really sort of challenging to navigate but you know we did it collectively in a successful way. I mean I was interested in your story about you've been married a couple of months and then I mean, you literally swept your wife off her feet and took her overseas. And most people I speak to, they say, look, it was okay for me because I was going to work. It can be very, very difficult for the partner who has left all her family and friends, in your case, 
you know no one over there. It's not like you had an established office that you could buttonhole a few people and say, hey, can you help us out and tell us where we can go for A, B, C, D? How did she cope? Yeah, look, we were very lucky to that degree. We, Her employer at the time, she was a, an operations manager for a sleep company, um, sleep apnea machines that were sold. So they had four sleep clinics in Adelaide and she did the, the ops role for that. They private owners, you know, they'd wanted her to remain knowing that it was only, you know, an 18 month, two year thing. So they facilitated her to work remotely, which was amazing. We were coming back sort of three times a year at least. So we coordinated those for, you know, things like team meetings that she needed to do, et cetera. But we were lucky that she could work remotely. So she still had that connectivity with her team, with her people and had that familiar face, familiar feel to it. The other thing we were very lucky with was the, I guess, collaboration between UAA and QBE and leveraging that relationship. That's our security over in, in Singapore and, and wider Asia. And, you know, there was a strong element of collaborative work with them. So there was relationships I was building professionally, but also with sort of some people more personally too. And they were very, very experienced with that's coming in. So they were, you know, very engaging with art. We, you know, they had a, a five-a-side soccer team. So they invited me out to play in that. They'd have, you know, work drinks and stuff like that. They'd invite me out. So you start to build those relationships. And I guess outside of that, my wife is, is naturally a social butterfly. So, you know, when we were out sort of a restaurant or a bar, she'd talk to people and we would manage to, you know, make some really close friends that still to this day are, are really close and have been out to Australia since a couple of times to visit us. So, yeah, we were very lucky in that respect, but definitely, you know, looking at other expats that were sort of there at the same time, they definitely had those challenges and it's quite challenging to overcome and definitely would put pressure on a relationship if you didn't have the sort of benefit and luck that we did. Would you do it again? All things being the same, yes, I would. It was very hard to actually leave Singapore. I loved it there. It was, it's an amazing place. It's, you know, close enough. The travel's amazing from there too. It was just the life circumstances that sort of dictated us to naturally want to come home. We were looking as a newly married couple to start having kids and building a family. Yeah, we could do that over there, but we wanted to be around friends and family and have that network sort of drove us to come home. But yeah, if, you know, the timing was the same, et cetera, 100%, I'd do it all over again. We're speaking with Mark Crossman, who is the Group Strategy and Distribution Manager for Underwriting Agencies Australia, or UAA. I want to change tack a little bit with you, uh, my friend. You drop out of school, which I found interesting, because then you go on and you do your Australian Institute of Company Directors course. You do the Stanford LEAD exec program, and then you do your MBA. Not bad for a kid that doesn't like studying. That is very true, yes. I think the MBA was something I looked at initially. That was the first tick in the box that I, I wanted to complete. I think that was, once again, you know, getting to a, I was in the ops manager role at that stage. You know, I could see people around me that I knew I had the same sort of drive, same sort of output, same sort of caliber. But being from Adelaide, it, it might be limited in, you know, where I could go. So my mum, actually, once again, a supportive mother, kindly lent her wisdom to me and said, you know what, I think you should look at, you know, solidifying your position. And I think that's what she goes, make it on paper like you've got a ticket in the door, I think she said. said, okay, I looked at different study options and the MBA was the one that engaged me. I, I liked business. I have a business mindset. It just thinks that way. And I was like, well, this could be beneficial to me. And I thought it would be challenging. I thought it would be rewarding. I think I had this conversation today, actually, with my CEO. I think at the time I thought one thing, 
But upon reflection, I think the benefit that I actually got was confidence. I was doing a lot of that stuff day to day in my role. And it was just, I guess, aligning what I was doing to the terminology in many ways throughout that MBA process. So I left that with, you know, a really strong network, which is a core element of, you know, this sort of study and, and a lot of the study I did. But the benefit of also being more confident in what I was doing and my ability. And, and that then led to the progression to Singapore. I think that Singapore element with the stakeholder engagement and the senior people I was working with around their CEO and the sort of senior people there led to, I guess, conversations around future potential at UAA. And UAA was the one who facilitated and supported the the Stanford course or the Stanford program, which was a 12-month thing. So, yeah, they were very keen for me and and supported fiscally and also just sort of work balance-wise, the me doing that course and undertaking that 12-month program. The AICD one, the Institute of Company Directors course, that was a byproduct of the MBA. I am to this day still a director of both of our Singapore entities. So I guess having that experience and that coursework and you know, that certification has helped with my understanding of the way boards work, um, you know, the, the director's responsibilities, that sort of thing. So they've all benefited in a way, 100%. But it was tying it back to a time where I needed motivation and engagement. And they all relate back to something that I am passionate about. So it made it a lot easier than, you know, learning algebra, for example. Oh, with you, 100%. I had to learn Latin. For what reason? I'm not really not sure, but uh, I'm sure at some stage I'll use it. We've talked a lot about uh, successes to date. I want to talk a little bit about failures with you, if you don't mind. What's the hardest challenge you've had to overcome in your life so far? Yeah, I mean, um, I'm a pretty open book with this. Some people, you know, might might sort of keep this a little bit private, but I've always been open. I encourage it. I'm an advocate for speaking up. When I transitioned to a management role, I was, you know, as you said, quite young. I didn't necessarily have the structure, the skill set or the knowledge to deal with, you know, the different pressures that came with that. And being younger as, as a male, especially, I, I didn't want to speak up. You know, I, I can manage this. I can handle it, this, that and the other. And and I guess I, I started to develop some mental health issues around, you know, depression, that sort of thing, not in a very, you know, overly serious way, but definitely something that was impacting my day-to-day and, and there was a change in my behaviour um, and people, you know, close to me noticed it. That impact was more so, I guess, driven by my own inability to talk to people and engage and seek advice. And in hindsight, were those issues bad? No, I just didn't have the right structure to sort of process them and sort of skills to navigate them. The way that I overcome it was to, you know, I engage with others. I, I sort of said, well, you know, I have to speak up. And I spoke to sort of some senior people at UAA. I spoke to some sort of senior people outside of UAA and personally as well. And I guess the advice that I got helped me overcome those initial bits, but also set me up for, I guess, from then to now with the mental network that I've got and my approach to things. I'm, I'm very much an open book. I like to engage with others, get perspective, hear diversity in thought, and then that sort of fulfills me and goes, oh, now I'm well-rounded in my approach. I'm pretty confident with where I'm going. So I think that it's something that impacted my life, definitely. It was a challenge, not as big a one upon reflection as, you know, some of those mental health battles out there, but definitely something that I think there was benefit from in the long run with, you know, understanding that, you know, there's support networks there and not only personally, but professionally, 
it's so beneficial to have a network of people that you can go to, that you can trust, that you can bounce ideas off, because that's, I guess, a way that you can upskill and, and widen your perspective. And look, those challenges are relative. You know, you mentioned that it's not as serious as some others, but really when you're embroiled in it, it is as serious as it is for anyone else, right? It's just at a different level and actually trying to deal with that stuff. And it brings me to another question, which is around the whole imposter syndrome. I've had it for 44 years because I don't think I've ever taken a role on where I felt 100% confident that I'd be able to do it. That's part of the benefit, but it's also a, it's a huge issue in terms of self-confidence. From what I'm understanding from you, that's part of what you're talking about. A question I have for you is, I know you went and spoke to people, but how did you get to that point where you go, you know what, I need to address this personally and go and speak to someone as opposed to hiding in the closet and hoping things would improve? In the end, I had really good support from my now wife and sort of she could see things going on and, and she was probably the driving factor with talking to others and that, that sort of shaped and changed my perspective on it. I still to this day, I, I think the first conversation I had on it was you know, terrifying. I was nervous. I thought I was going to be ashamed and it would ruin my career and all those thoughts running through your head and, and you generally, like I was with the situation, overthinking um, and that was probably the causation of it all. So I guess that, that I was driven by, by her to sort of seek you know, more experienced people with what they'd sort of experienced, how they'd overcome things, because she made me realise if I'm experiencing it, others would have too. And that was, I guess, core behind that. Imposter syndrome's a killer, uh, definitely. I still to this day experience it. Um, I've just joined our executive team. It's a new thing and, and you sort of start to question, like, oh, where's my position here? These guys are so experienced, so knowledgeable. I don't see myself at their level, but at the same time, you know, the, the advice I've got and, and, you know, the mentors I've got have always said, you know, there's a reason you are where you are. There's a benefit you bring. And, you know, those people wouldn't want me to be a part of their team or be a part of their journey if I wasn't going to contribute. So I guess that's some of the best advice I've ever got. And it's reflective of anyone that's transitioning into a more senior role is, you know, there's a reason you're there and the people that got you there want you there. Absolutely. And I think the thing is to convince yourself that that is the case, right? I want to ask you a couple of final questions if I could. If you had a magic wand and you could change anything about the insurance industry? That's probably the most challenging question I have ever been asked. In many ways, I want to say the, the guilty pleasure of nothing. I can't fault the industry. I can't fault the benefits that you get from it, the rewards you get from engaging with others you know, networks you can build, the day-to-day interactions with both, you know, your internal teams but the wider broker community. Now, all that's really positive. I think if you're being super critical, in many ways removing, you know, a lot of the stigma around engaging with, you know, other competitors out there, other companies and, and sort of, yeah, we build networks with brokers and stuff like that, but I think there's a need to engage with each other and, you know, put business to one side but look to professionally develop each other and the wider industry. I think that's something we can maybe look to improve upon. There is, you know, pockets of it, there's elements of it, but I think it can be done at a more grander scale and sort of looking at, you know, what's the success that everyone can contribute to everyone else's professional development. I think, you know, it's a marvellous industry. It's so rewarding that it's really hard to actually articulate to others outside, but at the same time, can't really fault anything that I've experienced. You don't stay in the industry nearly 18 years or 17 years, whatever I am, without, you know, being engaged and, I think you can look across the majority of the people within our industry and 
you, once you're in, you don't get out. And there's a reason behind that. So I think that's probably the only super critical element I could bring. And if you were able to go back to that young fellow who's made the decision three months before finishing his high school that he's going to leave, what advice would you give him? Well, number one would be don't go blow all your money from this sales role you're going to do that your mum then gives you a clip behind the ears. But in all seriousness, I think that it would, the advice I'd give myself is just to absorb. I think I, I spent probably the two years after leaving school in jobs that, you know, I was working, but I wasn't necessarily growing or learning. And I guess it was only when I went into insurance that I fully understood, you know, there is a, a an area of the world where you can work and you can learn, you can have fun, you can enjoy life at the same time of, you know, getting a job done. So I think it, the advice I'd give myself is more that, you know, don't jump into something meaningful and or at least try to understand that you're jumping into something where there's potential to be meaningful, not necessarily just do a day-to-day. And when you say meaningful, do you mean meaningful to yourself or do you mean meaningful to the people that you're interacting with? It's got to be, I guess as a guilty thing, it's got to be meaningful and purposeful to yourself. But the byproduct of that is definitely to provide a benefit, to provide something meaningful and tangible to those that, you know, the end user is, regardless of what industry you're in. Insurance is a marvellous one where, you know, you have the ability to impact people's lives in a negative or a positive. So it's making sure that your impact on them is positive and engaging and that you are providing a benefit and a, and a meaningful interaction with them. And the final question to you, Mark Crosman, if I asked you to describe yourself in five words or less, what would you say? Genuinely, I don't know. I would say that I guess people see me and some of the terminology used before as, as a lifelong learner. I like to treat every day as a learning lesson. That I'm adaptable, you know, I'm a change embracer, I guess. I'm motivating with others. I think that's something consistently said. You know, my mindset is forward thinking. I like to think ahead, not just on the day. And then I'm collaborative. I like to sort of, I, I love to work with other people, regardless of if it's a day to day or, you know, something wider in the industry. I think probably collaborative, yeah, uh, forward thinking, adaptable, motivating, and a learner. Hey, it's been a pleasure having you on Business Made Personal. I really enjoyed the chat. Thank you so much for lending us your ears. Please remember to click follow on your podcast app or subscribe at bmppodcast.com.au so we can give you a sneak peek of our next guest. Until next time. I'm Mark Silvera, and you've been listening to Business Made Personal.